You may not be able to see this, but uh, I'm wearing a pin this morning. It's a camel. It's the smallest camel I could find. <laughs> but it still won't fit through the eye of a needle. In Jewish folklore, legend has it that when a person desired to become Jewish, the rabbis would turn them away three times before allowing them to convert. The idea, of course, was that becoming Jewish is a huge responsibility with serious obligations. So if a convert came back after being turned away, it showed their determination to make a genuine commitment. Today, some rabbis still turn potential converts away so they have time to consider if they're willing to suffer from anti-Semitism. As the Talmud puts it, the first thing you should ask a potential convert to Judaism is, do you know Israel is afflicted, oppressed, downtrodden, and rejected, and that tribulations are visited upon them regularly? I have to say, that's not a very good marketing strategy for the synagogue. So I, I asked my friend, Rabbi Asher Knight at Temple Bethel, about this tradition, this folklore, and he said, I don't know any rabbi today who turns anyone away who wants to come. He said, most of us are like, you want to join us? Really? You do know what people say about Jews, right? Still interested? Awesome. Come and learn. We're glad to have you. This is more than I can say for Jesus. He turned would-be followers away for far less than persecution. In Mark 5, Jesus healed the demoniac and the man wanted to become a disciple and follow him, but Jesus turned him away. In John 6, he offered a difficult teaching and we're told that many of his disciples turned back and stopped following him. Not only did Judas betray him and Peter deny him, but all of Jesus' disciples eventually abandoned him, except the women, like Mary Magdalene. Maybe following Jesus is just too difficult for men. In our passage today, Jesus said it is very difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier, he said, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And his disciples were so astounded by that teaching that they exclaimed, if the rich can't be saved, then who can? The kind of question only poor Galilean fishermen would ask. The teaching came on the heels of one of Jesus' most famous encounters in the Gospels, commonly referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. It appears in all three Gospels, and yet in Mark, the man is neither young nor a ruler, but simply rich. And we only find out why he was rich at the end of the story when the narrator tells us he had many possessions. Now, I know that most of us hear this and imagine the man had a vast collection of shoes. Maybe he was a sneakerhead. Cars, maybe, clothing, technology, a very nice house. But the Greek word here, ketemata, always means the same thing. Property, land. The rich man was a landowner with many properties. And so when Jesus told him to sell all the land that he owned and give the money to the poor and follow him, the rich man could not do it. And he went away grieving. I admit no one wants to hear this story. So you will not find it read in the halls of health and wealth churches or spoken from the mouths of prosperity gospel preachers. Even when it is told, one scholar claims it is notoriously mishandled by those whose self-interest lies in soft-peddling its criticism 
of wealth and class. To avoid the sting of this text, medieval theologians invented a legend that there was a small gate in ancient Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, which camels could only enter on their knees through. There was no such gate. Leading Mexican economist Jose Miranda to humorously proclaim, this story has suffered ingenious manipulation at the hands of bourgeois conscience-tranquilizing exegetes. What a fun phrase. <laughs> bourgeois conscience-tranquilizing exegetes. Let us never be those. Western Christians have had such difficulty accepting Jesus' teaching on wealth We've engaged in all sorts of fantastic exegetical gymnastics to avoid taking this text seriously. Frederick Beekner was probably closest to grasping this when he claimed that it is harder for Americans to hear this story than for Nelson Rockefeller to get through the night deposit slot of the first national city bank. <laughs> the disciples' expression of frustration and consternation reflects the common assumption of their time and ours that wealth is a sign of God's favor. This was the dominant ideology in first century Judea, and it is still in the 21st century among Christians and non-Christian alike. Wealth is assumed to be a blessing from God, or at least an indication of ingenuity, intellect, or hard work. While some are living hashtag blessed lives in a world of Pandora papers, most people are living in a state of precarity and economic inequality, in a city that is last in mobility and opportunity. Jesus was diametrically opposed to the dominant ideology of the first and 21st century. He grew up as a poor Galilean in an exploitative political economy of asymmetrical taxation, extreme debt, predatory policies, wealth disparities, with tremendous class stratification between poor and peasant, and the aristocracy at the time benefited from this stratification. Jesus did not believe, though, that wealth was a gift from God. He never said wealth was a blessing. In fact, he said the opposite. Blessed are the poor. He talked about wealth more than any other subject, but he never praised the acquisition of property. And he always warned us about the deleterious impact wealth has on our spirits and societies, our relationship with God and our neighbors. Instead, what he did was cast a dream of a new humanity and a new community with a new economy called the kingdom of God, rooted in the Hebrew concept of jubilee that would be good news for the poor where debts are forgiven, land is returned, prisoners are released, the oppressed are set free, where everyone has a seat at the table and there is always enough to go around. And yet did you notice how much Jesus loved the rich man? His invitation to the rich landowner came from a place of love. Mark says Jesus looked at the rich man, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Can we see that as love? Jesus' love called the rich man to sell all his land. Jesus' love told the rich man to give all his money to the poor. Jesus' love beckoned the rich man to follow him. And it was Jesus' love that shocked the rich man, grieved the rich man, 
turned the rich man away. Love turned him away. Jesus' love could see that the rich man had all the property in the world, but still lacked one thing, God's dream. The love of Jesus is not a sentimental emotion or feeling. It is always a tough love that makes demands on us and requires sacrifice. The love of Jesus always calls us to the highest and best possible versions of ourselves. It always calls us into solidarity with the poor and the vulnerable, which requires that we be dispossessed of all the possessions we do not need. That is what Jesus meant by love. In the fall of 2011, a man named Haley was working as a phone technician at a company in Seattle for $35,000 a year. The median income at the time was close to 90000 and Haley was struggling to keep his head above water. The CEO there at the time, Dan, could tell something was up, so he approached Haley and said, what's wrong? And Haley replied, you're ripping me off. And Dan was startled because Haley was usually very shy and not prone to outbursts. So Dan replied, Haley, your pay is based on market rates. If you have different data to show me, please let me know. The data doesn't matter, Haley said. I know your intentions are bad because you've been going around bragging about how financially disciplined you are, but that just translates into me not earning enough to have a decent life. Dan walked away from the encounter shocked and hurt. He prided himself on treating his employees well. For days, he groused about the encounter with his family and friends. He felt like a victim. After a while, Dan realized that Haley was right. Not only about being underpaid, but about Dan's intentions. Dan had been so traumatized by the recession of 08 that he was operating in a spirit of scarcity, hurting his own staff. And so Dan decided to make a radical move and give everyone a 20% raise for the next three years. The staff rejoiced. Profits soared. You'd think that that was enough. And then in 2015, Dan Price shocked the world by announcing he would raise the minimum salary of all his employees to $70,000 a year and would do it by cutting his own salary. You may remember this because the media reacted like crazy people. Dan's announcement had 500 million interactions on social media and NBC's coverage became their most shared story in network history. Dan Price was heavily criticized on Fox News. Rush Limbaugh said he hoped business schools would study this for proof that socialism does not work. Even moderate economic pundits expected a swift bankruptcy. However, six years later, gravity is stronger than ever. Turnover was cut in half. The number of employees doubled. Revenue tripled. Most dramatically, there was a tenfold increase in homes purchased by employees. When the company stumbled in the pandemic, employees willingly offered to take pay cuts because of how deeply they believed in Dan and his dream for a better world. Today, Dan Price is hailed by the Harvard Business School as a wild success. His methods are being studied all over the country, and he's become a staunch advocate for economic equality. And it all started with an employee who called Dan to live into a higher version of himself. At the time, Haley's words didn't sound like love or feel like love. They stung. But sometimes love stings.
doesn't it? Our inability to accept Jesus' difficult teaching on wealth is rooted in the failure of our imaginations. We often cannot imagine selling our property and giving the money to the poor because we do not possess a dream bigger than our own possessions. Our church's history, interestingly enough, is called By a Dream Possessed, which comes from the title of a frequent sermon from our first senior minister, Dr. George Heaton, that he borrowed from the communist anti-war poet Seamus O'Shiel. Now, I know that in most churches, being possessed is typically frowned upon. However, here at Myers Park Baptist Church, it depends on what you're possessed by, I think. Our founders made the bold claim that the organization of this church took place because certain people were possessed of a dream. It was a dream of a different kind of church, free from denominational dogma or the narrow barbarism that characterized so much of religion in the South, free to call and ordain its own leaders, free to create its own structure and liturgy, free to ask hard questions and to think for oneself, free to be open to all and closed to none, free from the pew all the way to the pulpit, which Heaton claimed is the very essence of political democracy and a great bulwark against tyranny both inside and outside the church. Yet while our dream has been nothing less than divine for almost 80 years, we are still human. Which means that from time to time over the years, we've been distracted by other dreams and sometimes domesticated the grandeur of our founder's dream, narrowly associating it with something temporal instead of something divine. For this reason, Dr. Heaton proclaimed in his last sermon to us, we did not dream of a church edifice, lovely as this one is. We did not dream of an institution. We did not dream of a program. We dreamed of what God might do with each of us in bringing into actuality our unique unprecedented, never-recurring potentialities. He went on to warn us that our dream would die if we tried to take possession of it instead of allowing ourselves to be possessed by it. He said, the dream does not belong to me, it does not belong to you. It is God's rearrangement of all that has entered into our lives. And if we are possessed of it, we shall always be moved by that dream so that there is no place where we will stop or tarry to fashion in permanent form something which must forever change. God's rearrangement of all that has entered into our lives. That's exactly what Jesus was teaching. To truly be possessed by a dream, we must be dispossessed of everything else. Sadly, possession has been the common thread in Western history, the practice at the bedrock of civilization, the false religion W.E.B. Du Bois once described as the desire for the ownership of the earth forever and ever. Amen. Call it greed if you want, the root of all evil, but the desire to possess everything in God's creation has always been out of step with the teachings of Jesus. It has spoiled the earth and brought humanity to the brink of extinction, led us down a terrible path where we were taking land that belonged to other people, resources that were not ours to acquire, labor that deserved compensation, and even human beings that should have never been property to begin with. And now we must wonder, can we imagine a world in which stolen land is returned, resources redistributed, crimes atoned for? If not, we may need to find a bigger dream, 
In their book, Healing Haunted Histories, scholar Elaine Enns and Chet Myers suggest that the story of the rich man and Jesus should be read as an allegory about the descendants of North America, our settlers' history. Settlers whose wealth and power and affluence was built on centuries, centuries of murder and dispossession of indigenous peoples. Imagine Jesus in this story, they say, as an indigenous teacher approached by a settler, longing for an idealized picture of the afterlife. Jesus simply reminds the man of the basic treaty obligations they've made together and emphasizes the prohibitions they have against murder and theft and lying. And the settler, predictably, responds with a dramatic move to innocence. I've kept all these since my, my youth. And Jesus then practices radical love for the settler, making it clear that liberation will require the repatriation of indigenous lands, the official freezes, bound and blinded by his ideologies of possession and control, which include the ownership of properties that were once native homelands. And so the man turns away grieving, no longer interested in what salvation means. And Jesus says, it is harder for a settler to enter the kingdom of God than for a buffalo to go through the eye of a needle. If we want to be possessed by a dream, we cannot allow ourselves to be possessed by our possessions. Instead, we must allow ourselves to be dispossessed for the sake of that dream. The dream is not a building or a sanctuary or an organization. The dream is not a governance structure or literature or a tradition. The dream is a beloved community, a people on a journey. The dream is us together. And when you have a dream that is that big and that important, you will be willing to give up anything for it. Peter realized this dream when he said, look, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake or for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age and in the age to come. The dream is the kingdom of God, a place where there will be no rich or poor because those who possess more things will have dispossessed themselves so that everyone has enough to go around. The dream is a community where class divisions do not determine a person's value or power. It is not the American dream that we seek, but one like Dr. King cast from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Now, I know that today is joining Sunday, and you may not think that this difficult story is very helpful for attracting new members to our church. <laughs> you might be right. But we do not believe our church is the end-all, be-all. We believe our church is simply one of the many things that God is using to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We harbor no illusions of perfection. We haven't figured out yet what it means to follow a savior who calls us to sell all our property and give it to the poor. We're not even close to the church in Acts 2 and 4 who did just that and sold all their land and gave the proceeds to the apostles. In fact, I've never known a single follower of Jesus in my entire life who fulfilled this teaching. No. As Gene Owens once said, we are a community of failures. A community of failures who are trying to do something 
And that is what the church is all about. The simple realization of who we are and whose we are. We belong to a God who offers us an approval we can never earn. Our job as a church is to call people to that realization, to that freedom, and the possibilities that grow out of it. Those becoming members today are not just joining a church, they're joining a dream. A community of dreamers possessed by a dream that requires regular bouts of dispossession. The willingness to scrape from our whole whatever barnacles of the past might impede our progress. Our dream of a beloved community is always out on the horizon, something we're constantly reaching for and working for but will never fully achieve. It's the dream of a people who are dispossessed of the principalities and powers of this world, the privileges and entitlements of class status and power and wealth for the sake of something bigger, for the sake of beloved community. So the question that Jesus in joining Sunday demands that we ask of ourselves today is do you have a dream for this city that is bigger than your wealth and property? Do you have a dream for the world that is bigger than your own individual life? Do you have a dream for the church that is bigger than your own spiritual journey? If so, then join us and wed your dreams with ours so that we can work side by side to make each other's dreams come true. We don't have, the all, we don't have all the answers, but we're excited to discover how you are going to change us and how we are going to be transformed as a community through your gifts and graces. We walk together on a journey of faith like Peter and the disciples, seeking to leave everything behind yet knowing that we may gain the whole world at the same time, struggling to discover how to be dispossessed of our possessions so we can remain possessed by God's dream. Which means, in the end, all that we can really say to you or to each other is what my friend Asher says. You want to join us? Really? You do know what people say about us, don't you? Still interested? Awesome. Come and join us. We're glad to have you. Amen.